Well, we begin a new sermon series today. Uh, for the summer, we are in uh, what's called Book 5 of the Psalms. And so if you didn't know, the Psalms are actually divided, divided into five books. It's not equal. It's not like 30, 30, 30, 30, uh, but rather it's a little bit unequal. And so, so Book 5 is, is Psalm 107 all the way to the end, to 150. So we're just choosing a variety of Psalms from that section of the scriptures just to meditate on them, to think about them this summer. After all, the Psalms are the songbook of God's people, uh, songs we've been singing for, for thousands of years together to get to know God, to understand who we are, all these kinds of things. And we're opening today with Psalm 107, which is the first Psalm in the fifth book. It's fairly lengthy. We had to shrink the font down, as you can see there, if you're using the paper bulletin. Uh, but we're going to read it first, and then we're going to spend some time reflecting on it. Why is going to come and read it for us? Why, if you'd now come. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble, and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor, they fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man, for he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Some were fools through their sinful ways and, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near the gates of death. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out, their word, uh, sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them from their destruction. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love and his wondrous works to the children of man, and let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to the heaven, and they went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol him in the congregation of the people, and praise him in the assembly of the elders. He turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste, because of the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, 
and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to live in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they, were diminished, when they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless wastes. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Uh, just a quick note before we begin the sermon that if you need water, there's water on the info table over here, and the, and the washrooms are in the gym as well if you need that. And of course, if your children just need to wander around, it's, it's really no problem. Uh, outside is, is a little tricky, so you know, do your best. We're, we're fine with just about everything. Uh, one of my first memories of the Bible like the printed book that contains the scriptures is of what we, in, at least in my small town, called a Gideon's New Testament. And that was like, it's a, it's, a, it's a small, soft cover Bible that contained the New Testament and one book from the Old Testament. And of course, maybe you know which Old Testament book was included. It was the Psalms. It was at the back, after you could read the whole New Testament, the Psalms was there as well. Now, why would they do that? Why would they print the New Testament and the Psalms? Why not Proverbs? Why not Genesis? Why not something else? Well, the Psalms are some of the most beloved, best-known parts of all the scriptures, but how did they become that way? Well, I think the reason is because they help us articulate the deeper desires, joys, sorrows of our hearts. The, the, the Psalms don't function first and foremost on an intellectual level, but on an, in, but on an emotional level. They, they get to our minds sort of through our hearts. On a very basic level, they're, they're songs, they're, they're poetry. And of course, poetry and music, it doesn't knock the front door down but it kind of slips in through the side door and ambushes you. And many of us have, have, have loved different psalms because of how meaningful the phrase or the, the refrain was during a very low or very high, uh, very difficult time of life. So as, you, as we study the psalms this summer, you're going to have to understand that it's going to get to your mind through your heart. The language you're going to find in them, it's, it's, a, it's evocative, it's emotional. There's imagery, there's metaphor. And as we all know, you can't press metaphors too far. Because when the Psalms tell us, for instance, uh, that God covers us like his wings, like a mother hen, the, the Psalmist does not mean that, that God has literal wings or is some sort of cosmic chicken or something like that. It means the image of a mother hen protecting her chicks like on a cold night. That tells us something about how God cares for his people. It, it makes us feel something about God's protection for us, particularly when we feel exposed to harm. So I say this as a prelude to our whole series, because this is how all the Psalms function, but especially as an introduction to this one. Because in the psalm before us, the main heart of the psalm are four human predicaments. But what's interesting about them is they're not typically Israelite situations. A normal Israelite reading the psalm might never find themselves in any of these places. For instance, in verse 23, some go down to the sea in these seafaring ships to do business and they face uh, a great storm on the ocean. Well, Israel didn't do hardly any seafaring. They weren't known for their ships and their sailing. What could this psalm have to do with them? Well, what you will see is that being storm-tossed on an ocean, most of us have not literally experienced that, but we've all experienced emotionally. We all know what it's like to be in too wide of a world that's spiraling out of control. The feeling of being in the midst of a huge tempest, even a hurricane, needing God's help, that's supposed to move us on a heart level, emotional level, and it kind of finds its way to our head a little bit later. But here is the outline for the psalm. I want to talk about, there's a brief introduction. So I want to say who the psalm is for. That's in verses one through three. And the main, the main chunk will be the four predicaments, 
the four deliverances that show up. And then there's sort of a closing part of the psalm you'll see. And it's, again, I'll talk about who the psalm is for because it kind of readdresses the audience. But the psalm opens with this generic line, instructing the people, the congregation, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Now it sounds like a typical church line, doesn't it? But let's poke at it a bit. Let's ask a couple questions. What does it mean to give thanks to God? You ever thought about that? Well, here's at least my answer. It means at the basis of your being, you acknowledge you are not the capital S source from which all things flow. It means that the food on your table, the the sleep you get at night, any assets you own, any friends you have, any job you can work, all of those things and more are a gift from a good God. If you've ever sung the doxology, you know, the praise God from, you know, from whom all blessings flow. I'm not going to sing it. I was tempted there for a second. But that's that's a musical representation of what I just said, that the good things flow from God, not from us, or they flow from God to us. To be thankful is to look around at your life and to acknowledge um, out loud or at least in the quiet of your heart, like this is all God's doing. That's what it means to be thankful. And that's why gratitude journals are helpful if you've ever done one of those. If if you use them, you know, as a Christian person, it it helps to acknowledge these are all the things God is giving me that I don't often see. So the reason the psalmist cites that we ought to give thanks is because God's goodness and his love go on and on. He says, look, you're never going to arrive at a day when you run out of God's love. You're never going to arrive at a day when his goodness uh, finds its end. As far into the future as your mind can conceive, whatever apocalypse you, you think may or may not be coming, uh, God's love and goodness will still exist there. Now, second question. So if that's what thankfulness is, who is instructed to be thankful? Well, in verses two and three, the author writes that it's the redeemed who should talk like this. Those redeemed from trouble and those gathered from the lands. Now, what does it mean to be redeemed? Sounds like a coupon or something like that. Well, in the Old Testament, the word redeemed, it was commonly used to refer to assets in an extended family. And if you've ever read the book of Ruth, uh, we, we, in that one, we see a, a member of the family dying and no descendants being left. And perhaps in the course of their life, they sold off lands or houses, some other thing that kind of belongs to the family. Well, well at some point, the next closest family member um, has the option to buy back those assets, land, house, or whatever, to bring it back into the family. And so this is mainly an Old Testament word, but it means to, to buy something back, to take something back, to bring something back. So if the psalmist calls them the redeemed of the Lord, what does that imply? It means that God is bringing something back. God is, God is buying something. God is, and in this case, it's people. He's plucking them out of a troubled situation, bringing them into a good one. And of course, if you know Israelite history, this happens all the time. I mean, most famously in Egypt, when God rescues a whole nation of people, but later when Babylon and others invade and take slaves and captives, God, God rescues them. He creates opportunities for them to return. And modern Christians ought to take note that this still applies. Because this concept of redeem, it was used to, to apply to Jesus's work. That we're bought back by Jesus, not from a foreign power, an invading army, but from dark spiritual forces and powers. We're brought from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. So we can read this for us, that a Christian should understand the goodness and love of God on a profound level because they have been redeemed. They should be the most thankful and grateful of all people. And as we all know, that's exactly the reputations Christians have, right? I mean, I mean, maybe sometimes not. Maybe sometimes we're grumpy. Sometimes we're complainy. Sometimes quick to see what we lack. And so that's why the psalm has to command the people of God and remind them to be thankful. Have you ever thought that if we were always thankful, we wouldn't need to be told? <laughs> but we need to be told, which means we're not always getting it right. But to answer our title question, who is this psalm for? 
The primary audience here is the people of God, those who've been rescued, those who've been brought out of darkness, those who usually complain but need to be grateful. And if you are part of the people of God, well, great, this is for you. It'll make sense. Now, if that's not you, if, if you're listening this morning and you're not part of the people of God, you haven't made up your mind about Jesus, I, I still have some sort of good news. The four predicaments described, we're going to get to in just a second here, they're pretty universal. They're not about sort of church-specific situations. They're not about, you know, how to be a better Presbyterian or, or anything like that. They're, they're just sort of human situations. And so if you haven't made up your mind or if you're firmly against Jesus but happen to be listening anyways, there's still going to be something here for you. So let's look at this, part two, the four predicaments and four deliverances. First one is wanderers retrieved, wanderers retrieved. That's in verse four, where the psalmist writes, some wandered in desert wastes. Now from this description, it really sounds like people who've either been banished from the land and are kind of wandering around, but perhaps they've left of their own accord. Might be a reference to the desert wanderings of God's people before they entered the promised land, you know, after Egypt. But either way, the people described here find themselves wandering some sort of dry, arid, unforgiving wilderness area. If you you caught our last series, we talked about this with Hagar. She got cast out of her home and and she ran quickly into trouble, was in danger of dying. And here in this Psalm, verse 4, tells us, well, the problem is they can't find a city to dwell in. You're like, why do they need a city? Why don't they just like, you know, find a well or something? Well, cities in ancient times, particularly, they meant protection, provision, the sort of the assistance of fellow humans. Usually they're built around a water source, you know, in the, in the Mideast. But these people can't find a city. They can't find a place to dwell. And therefore they're hungry and thirsty and, and near death and their soul is fainting within them. And that means they're just, they're given up. They're like, internally, I'm done. <laughs> it's, it's over. Their strength has ebbed. But then this is going to be a theme in each one. In their distress, in their trouble, they cried to the Lord. That's in verse six. They acknowledged it. They asked God for help. Now, interestingly, look at how God rescues them. He doesn't send food. He doesn't send water. He doesn't send an angel, but he leads them to a city. And presumably in this city, they found, you know, food, water, shelter, all those kinds of things. And these rescued wanderers in verse 8 are to thank God for his love and his works. And as a kind of summary of this first predicament and first deliverance in verse 9, the psalmist writes, he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Now, important to remember The Psalms are offering us an image to consider, not a historical situation to learn from. This is really a gear shift from our Genesis series. Different kinds of literature in the scriptures are functioning differently. This is an image to consider because most of us, you're like, look, I haven't haven't been wandering in a desert waste. I haven't haven't faced hunger uh, or, you know, like serious hunger. I haven't faced serious thirst. But is any one of us wandering around with unfulfilled longings? Anyone feel parched? For a good friend or a spouse or something else, anyone feel hungry for rest, hungry for joy? Anyone have some angst about the next season of life, getting into university, getting into college, whatever? James K. Smith, a favorite writer of mine, he wrote a book called On the Road with St. Augustine. And in that, he argues that St. Augustine, who was an African church leader from the fourth century, that he was really the first one to write about this experience of of sort of wandering around, being on the road, looking for fulfillment long before Bono or whatever told us that they haven't found what they're looking for. Augustine was telling us that, that he was, he was going to Rome and he's going to all these places looking for meaning and purpose and fulfillment. He's, he's taking ships across the Mediterranean, but he couldn't find it. And part of the problem Smith writes is that uh, we don't know what we're looking for because we don't know what we want. (laughs) And our hearts are fickle. At one moment we want comfort, but then we want success, but comfort has a different set of priorities than success does. All that to say, if you, you may feel like a wanderer this morning, 
but you might not even know what you want. But if you feel angst, if you, if you feel like I'm not who I want to be, if, I, if you sense a hunger or thirst, this is for you. This is your image. And the good news, of course, C.S. Lewis writes, so there's a place where all your longings can be fulfilled. There is a place where you will be at rest, but it's just not this world. <laughs> the psalmist tells us your longings, your angst, your whatever, it's satisfied by God alone. The hungry soul is filled with the good things of God. And interestingly, all the problems of this first predicament, lostness, hunger, thirst, exhaustion, all these things are offered solutions by Jesus. When Jesus comes along, he says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I fill up hungry people. I am the spring of living water. If you drink of me, you won't be thirsty. Jesus invites, if you're feeling weary, if you're heavy laden, to come to him and rest. So if you feel this wanderer spirit this morning, if you're hungry, thirsty for something, you can cry out to God. He will deliver you. That is the promise of this psalm. Now, predicament number two, prisoners set free. Look at verse 10. Some sat in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons. You'll notice each of these four predicaments starts with this, you know, some did this or some did that. And in English, that would normally mean these are different groups, you know, some over here, some over there. But in Hebrew, that's not necessarily the case. A person might belong to just one predicament or all the predicaments, like a four-circle Venn diagram. You know, some people are in the middle belonging to everything, but uh, just because you're a wanderer doesn't mean you can't be a prisoner. You might be both or neither. But the people in prison, if you look at their descriptors, uh, it's it's pretty bleak. First, in verse 10, they're in darkness. Also, in verse 10, they're near in the shadow of death. They're near death. They're afflicted, which means they're physically suffering. They're, They're bound in chains. Now, how did they end up in such a state? Well, verse 11 tells us they'd rebelled against God. They'd not followed God's law, but they've gone their own way. They're in prisons of their own making. They're not innocent. See, at some point in their life, they'd seen the way that God runs the world. But they threw off his wisdom and threw off his command, said, I don't want to do that. But by going their own way, they've ruined themselves. And they're in such a place, according to verse 12, that no human can help them. Again, this is an image. We're meant to, at one, at one hand, like feel for these people to sympathize with their plight, but also to see ourselves in this description. This is not just a verse for anyone who's incarcerated, but of course, it would be applicable to such a person. Uh, many other modern states might also identify with the description. Addictions, destructive patterns of behavior, endless excessive gambling, self-sabotaging ways of life. All of these things might feel like you're in a prison, like you're bound. And on a less extreme end, have you just ever sat in disbelief after you said something really dumb? (laughs) Damaged a relationship and wondered, you know, why why do I do that? Why do I act this way? Maybe you've wondered, how did life close in so much? How did I get to this place? And so my question to you this morning is, does anyone just feel like a prisoner of their own choices? You feel trapped by your habits and behaviors. You feel stuck in a life that you no longer like. Well, in verse 13, the imprisoned cry to the Lord. God delivers them from their stress. He takes them from darkness to light. He moves them far away from death's door. He explodes the chains that bind them and he breaks the doors that have kept them locked in. He snaps in in half the bars that held them back. God delivers them. He delivers the imprisoned. Perhaps you know the hymn, And Can It Be by Charles Wesley. Um, It's a famous one. But I've sometimes sung the fourth verse and not knowing what Wesley was talking about. Now, I, I don't have any documentation for this, but it's my, it's my thesis, my hypothesis, that I think he had Psalm 107 in mind when he wrote that. I, I'm going to read to you the lyrics. Here's how it goes. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, 
Fast bound in sin and nature's night, thine eye, God's eye, diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That sounds a lot like what the psalmist is saying here. That there these people in prison, that they're, they're, they're bound in sin. They're in this dungeon, but when they cry out to God, God delivers. God specializes in these people who have nowhere else to turn. So here's the question. Do you feel trapped in your life? Do you feel like the walls have closed in? Is there an addictive behavior you cannot break? You can turn to the God who delivers. Okay, third predicament in deliverance. The sick restored. Verse 17, some were fools through their sinful ways. Now, it sounds like we're leading into another little section about unwise choices and addictions, but verse 18 sheds a bit more light. It says, because of these choices, these people loathe food and are near death. So the idea in this third section is that we have this group of people who are, are inflicting damage on themselves and cannot stop. They're not imprisoned by, by external forces, but they're their own worst enemy. They live in a hard world, but it's a world made hard by their own choices. And it's that hardness is even manifesting in a kind of sickness and illness where they, where they can't eat. But after they cry out to God in verse 19, look at, look at verse 20. God sends his word out to heal them. And healing refers to, to bodily ailments, you know, you know, physical diseases, but it's also a larger, more spiritual sense of healing. They're not just given medicine that makes them eat better or sleep better. They're restored in their inner being. Such people, says verse 21, understand that God's, lo- God's love is steadfast. It doesn't give up. That God's love extends even to those who are harming themselves. And in verse 22, that people who are in this state and have been delivered should bring sacrifices to God. So let's translate this. Is any among us sick because of self-destructive habits? Anyone have some issues with food you can't get over? Anyone their own worst enemy? The first thing I'd tell you is that God's love is pursuing you. That's what the psalmist says. When you feel like no one else is there, if you feel like everyone else looks down on you or thinks poorly of you, God's love is still there. When, when you get to the bottom, wherever that bottom is, God's love will find you there. God's interested in people like that. Those who feel unloved, those who by their foolishness have, have destroyed important things in their life. The psalm says the, 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 be, the bottom is not an end, but a beginning. And there will be a day when in Christ you can sing songs of joy. Okay, fourth predicament, fourth deliverance. The storm tossed, rescued. In the first three predicament, there were various issues with sin and foolishness. Most of, of, of their afflictions, their, hard, their hardships were in part due to their own actions. But in this fourth predicament, there's really no such indication. Rather here, this group is just sort of doing their work. Uh, according to verse 23, they're just doing business on the great waters. <laughs> they're, they're, they're sailors or traders or they're running a fishing boat or something like that. But while out on the waters, it says they see the deeds of the Lord. And what that means is a storm erupts. The wind rises, the waves of the sea come up, they they rise and fall, and even these experienced sailors lose heart. They don't know what to do. It says the courage, their courage melts away, and they're at their wits' end. And in the middle, middle of this storm, they cry out to the Lord, and like Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, the command is given, and in verse 29, excuse me, the storm is stilled and the waves are hushed. The sea responds to the voice of its maker and its master, and it obeys, and the ship is guided to a safe haven. Just like those wanderers who get to a city, the storm-tossed are protected by this safe harbor. For this final group, they are in too wide a world and too wild a world. They found themselves in a situation that's outside of their control. They're tossed by waves they cannot command. 
Some of you know what that's like. Where you were just going about your daily life, you were, you were at your regular job and some rogue wave tossed you end over end. Maybe even today, maybe right now you're in the middle of a storm that threatens to, to drown you, it feels like, or drown your faith. Anyone's courage melting away? Anyone reeling and staggering like a drunk person because of a, a storm in your life? Anyone just trying to keep their head above water? Sometimes the storms of life are obvious ones. Medical diagnosis, a, a broken or lost relationship, a crisis of faith. But sometimes the storms of life are less obvious. Maybe you just hate your job. <laughs> Maybe you just wonder, am, am I in the right profession after all? Maybe you have, have conflict with your family after years of getting along. Maybe your, your children have moved out and you're just not sure who you are anymore. Obvious or not obvious, if you're in a storm, if you're rising and falling on the waves, you can cry out to the one who can still that storm, who can guide you to a safe harbor. So we have four predicaments and four deliverances. And I would just ask you, what is your world like? Is it too confusing, too small, too large and too wild, too uncontrollable? Have you wrecked it? Leads us to part three. Who is this Psalm for? Verse 33 through 39, they function as a kind of summary. They tell us about this God who is the great reverser, who turns rivers into deserts, but also deserts into rivers, which again is an image. In verse 36, we see hungry fed. In verse 38, the poor blessed. In verse 41, the needy brought out of affliction. And in turn, the former princes disgraced and cast out. That's in verse 40. But where I really want to zoom in is on the concluding verse. Verse 43, it says this, Whoever is wise, let him or her attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. In other words, God does not always work the way we think. We often associate the blessing of God with success. We think God is at work when we succeed in our jobs, but that's not necessarily the case. Over and over this psalm, and as well, I mean, the whole Abraham series shows us God's at work in and through various kinds of affliction. But verse 43 tells us, if you're thinking straight, if you're paying attention, even if you're not in a current crisis, uh, you should recognize yourself in this psalm. If you are a Christian, if you, if you are redeemed of the Lord, then you are the rescued one. You're one of the rescued ones. It makes no sense to pretend otherwise. You know, in the, in the final book of the Bible, uh, the book of Revelation, there's this tremendous scene in chapter 5. And I can't go over all of it because there's a lot to cover. But basically, around the throne of God, angels are singing. And then it says, joining in with them is every creature in heaven on earth, under the earth, and in the sea. Now, look, I don't know what it means for, for fish to sing or, or worms or whatever, but, but somehow all these creatures are joining in. And you know what song they're singing in Revelation chapter 5? They're singing about how Jesus is worthy. Because he was slain, because by his blood, he ransomed people for God. And that word ransomed is really close to redeemed. It means he bought them back. He paid the price. He redeemed them. See, it's not just Psalm 107 that tells the redeemed of the Lord to sing to the God who's rescued them. But one day, the, the fish will join in. All creation will sing this song. All creation will know the name of the God who redeems wanderers and sick. And that God's name is Jesus. See, Psalm 107, it gestures forward to the day when Christ will die so that people from all corners of the earth will be gathered in. And that invitation is wide open. But all who have, if you have been at one point redeemed, if you are a Christian, you'd be wise to remember this morning, the work of faith begins anew each day. C.S. Lewis writes in one of his letters that relying on God has to begin all over, every day, again, as if nothing had yet been done. Which means, 
There'll be days you feel like a wanderer and you're gonna look to other things to fill your soul. There are gonna be days when you feel imprisoned by your own sin and foolishness. There's gonna be days when you are sick and suffering and you'll be looking for healing. And there'll be days when you are kind of minding your own business and a storm will come up and you'll be at your wit's end and you'll be stumbling around like a drunken sailor. There'll be days like that. And this Psalm tells us, cry out to God, call out to him, he'll hear you. To be a Christian is not to pretend like everything okay. To be a Christian is to know who to turn to when everything's not. I pray that you'd see Christ and trust him this morning. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this psalm, which illustrates um, how far we need to go, what we do when we're down, what we do when, when, when sort of life sweeps up around us in its various forms. Thank you that Christ has died for each and every one who turns to him, that no matter what kind of situation we find ourselves in, that, that he is there to rescue and to deliver and to redeem and to restore. Help us to trust him this morning. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.